Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Bo Branson. He's a professor of philosophy at Brasica University in Kentucky. Um, when I first saw that you're at Brasica University, the last right. place in my mind I th thought it would be was in Kentucky. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a little, little out of the way, but. <laughs> um, today we're going to be talking about like the Trinity and like the monarchy, the father and all these like really kind of like fun mm -hmm. views. Um, so to start off, Bo, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, things like that? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I'm a professor of philosophy at, uh, at Brescia University in, in uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. Um, I, I grew up in, uh, in Oklahoma, so it's, it's not too much different. Um, I, uh, I, I grew up Baptist and I converted to Eastern Orthodoxy when I was in my early twenties and, I guess it was then that I really started kind of thinking about the Trinity. I, before that, it was kind of something I knew, like, you're supposed to believe in it, but I didn't really know what it was. Um, and then I started really kind of thinking about it more. It, it, in an Orthodox liturgy, there's just constant, constantly repeated, you know, glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all this. And so uh, I was interested in the Church Fathers, and so I, I started kind of reading up on them. Uh, and what they had to say about the Trinity, um, and eventually I went to uh, went to school for um, philosophy and classics, and and I read some of the Church Fathers in Greek, and I started learning kind of some you know ancient philosophy and philosophical terms and so forth. And I, I realized that a lot of the translations were really bad, and that actually if you you know read them in the original language, they're making sophisticated philosophical arguments, but they kind of didn't come across in English. So I got really interested in that. Um, and to make a long story short, I ended up going to, to grad school at Notre Dame and doing my, my dissertation on the Trinity. Um, and I had a kind of a co-directors from the philosophy and the theology departments and, and so forth. So um, that's kind of, I guess that's a little bit of, of background to kind of who I am and how I got interested in the, the Trinity. I guess one thing I, I'll say is just, I, you know, I am, um, I'm really interested in, in things from a historical perspective and kind of from the perspective of intellectual history. So, um, it, it annoys me, I guess, when people, when people make, um, people would make a lot of criticisms of the doctrine of the Trinity. And then especially in analytic philosophy of religion, you'll have people kind of trying to defend it or they're sort of thinking they're defending it. But in a lot of cases in, in analytic philosophy in particular, uh, the discussion is, is very, or has been very not connected to the actual history of the doctrine. And that, that was something that kind of always annoyed me. And so, um, Part of what I want to do is is uh, kind of try to raise maybe some awareness about the actual history of the doctrine and how it was understood in, in antiquity, which uh, I think philosophers in particular have not really, most philosophers have not done a very good job of, of getting clear on kind of the history of it. Okay, and yeah. so as a result, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the conversation, in, in my view, just doesn't really connect to the actual doctrine very well mm -hmm. so, yeah. okay yeah that's super helpful so thanks for that Bo. and i think something that you might be 
like bring up again and again as we keep going is you want to not look at like just like starting with like the bare bones of like what does analytic philosophy in the 21st century think about Trinity, but you want to go back to like the church fathers um, and really try to yeah. start from there to help us build and understand like what do we mean when we're talking about like the, the Trinity? Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's right. So this might be a little bit of a loaded question here, um, but we're looking at like the traditional Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Like what exactly is that? What's going on here? Yeah, um, I, I saw that uh, uh, question coming out, and I thought this is going to be a big, <laughs> this is a big topic. So, um, it it would be hard to summarize um, all of it, um, but I mean, I guess um, a, a way um, a way that people think about it in analytic philosophy, and I guess um, in some way, it's not maybe an awful summary but it but depending on on whether you keep the history in mind or not but um obviously uh trinitarians think there's uh father son and holy spirit um these are not just three names for the same person or the same thing like samuel clemens and mark twain um that would be modalism um so they're they're three you know father son and holy spirit are are distinct persons um, uh, all of them have the divine nature, so they're all fully divine, uh, but there's only one God. And that's usually kind of the way that analytic philosophers sort of put it, put it to kind of put it as a puzzle, um, which I, we can talk about, but I think it's not that big of a puzzle really. Um, but uh, what that leaves out, uh, I've argued it, it leaves out a number of things. So one thing it leaves out is um, uh, divine power, divine action, which is something Gregory of Nyssa talks a lot about. Um, uh, really, his answer to the question why they're not three gods has more to do with God's power than it has to do really with the divine nature. Of course, he thinks that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have the divine nature, but he doesn't really think that the word God means a thing with the divine nature. He thinks it means a thing with a certain kind of power, primarily. And it might, it might entail that a that, that, that thing has the divine nature, um, uh, depending on the context. But he, he brings up... Uh, things like, you know, Moses is referred to as God. God says, I will, it says to Moses, I will make you a God to Pharaoh. Uh, and he says, well, Moses didn't have the divine nature. Um, you know, I've said to your gods, all of you sons of the most high, if you ever listen to Michael Heiser and that kind of, you know, uh, kind of thing. Uh, Gregory is very cognizant of that. There's a lot of things called gods in the Bible that aren't things that have the divine nature. So he says it's not, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a, a disconnect in a way to, to think that's the, the puzzle is how can they possibly have the same divine nature and, and not be three gods. Um, it also leaves out something I've talked about online a lot, the monarchy of the father, which has to do with the fact that the father is uh, on uh, sort of traditional historical view. The father has no source in any sense. Um, he's just kind of, he just exists, um, whereas the Son and the Spirit are from the Father in some sense. He's in some sense the source of the of the Son and Spirit, and the the way of uh, the way of analytic philosophers thinking about the Trinity kind of leaves that out. 
Um, there's a whole lot of other stuff you can go into perichoresis, the fact that they kind of interpenetrate one another, um, the persons of the Trinity do. Um, so that's kind of a, a handful of things about the, the doctrine of the Trinity that are, uh, that are kind of key points. Um, and like I said, ways in which I, I think the philosophical conversation is a little bit disconnected from that. It tends to just focus only on the shared nature and the ideas where that creates this puzzle. How can there be three gods? Mm -hmm. And I think that just leaves a lot of it, a lot of things out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. So if I understand you right, Bo, um, the way I always understood like the idea of like, well, if you're asked like, well, what is the Trinity? What do Christians believe? And you'll say like, essentially like you believe like in monotheism, there is one God. Um, but within God, there are like three divine persons. There's the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. Uh, and you say something like they're all equally God, but they're distinct persons. Um, mm -hmm. do you think that's fair? Do you think we're loading more into that than like what tradition says? Like, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. I think, um, I think you can see a, a number of shifts in the way that that people talk about God and talk about the Trinity over the centuries. <clears throat> and um, I think probably sort of early on, those changes are pretty innocent. Um, they, the, you know, people kind of keep in mind what they're, what they mean when they're talking in different ways. Um, I, I think at some point, and I, you know, I focus more on the patristic era um, a little bit on the medievals. Um, uh, and I, I know less about early modern philosophy and theology, but I, I suspect that sometime in the modern period, um, or maybe even more recently than that, I think people sort of forgot what the, the forgot how they're, how they were talking about God. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit more specific what I, what I mean. So in the Bible, Dale Tuggy has made this argument, and I've, I've said a lot of stuff to kind of respond to this. In, in the Bible, everyone sort of agrees that the word God, when it's used just like the name for an individual, typically refers to the Father. Um, there's, uh, there's a handful of times, um, I don't know, maybe a dozen times that Christ gets referred to as God in some sense uh, in, in the Bible. Most of those don't use the definite article, which means that God is using being used more like a predicate, like man, like human or divine. Um, there's a couple that have the definite article. So, but then there's like hundreds of times that God the Father is referred to just as God. <clears throat> so uh, that's also what you see early on in, in early Christian, you know, pre-Nicene church fathers. So Justin Martyr and Irenaeus will just kind of use God the word God to refer to the father, to mean the father. Um, and that still really is, is what you get. You get a lot of that even up through the council of Nicaea and, and beyond. Uh, at a certain point, people um, start using the word God a little bit differently. And it's not because they're uh, so Tuggy uh, and some other Unitarians kind of seem to think that they sort of mean the same thing by the word God, but they've decided it's the Trinity instead of the Father. 
Uh, but in reality, if you look at what they say, like John of Damascus, for example, is is very explicit about this in the exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. Um, he says, you know, you can use words like God or man in, in two different ways. You can use them to refer to an individual or you can use them to refer to a nature. So, for example, if I said like uh, if I looked out the window and I said, oh, you know, if there's a lion and I said the lion just ate the little boy who <laughs> was chasing after, you know, you you would know that I'm referring to a specific lion. Right. I'm referring to an individual or what the Greeks call a hypostasis. Right. But if I say like the lion is the king of the jungle or the lion is the most noble beast in the animal kingdom or something, I'm referring to the nature or the species or the right. I'm, it's a it's a general claim. Or if I say like the humpbacked whale is nearly extinct. Well, I'm not talking about an individual whale. I'm talking about the whole species or man is a rational animal. And I'm not saying one particular man is a rational animal. I'm saying that's the nature. So you can use God in the same way, right? You can use God to refer to an individual or you can use God to talk about the nature of, of divinity, right? Uh, and they point this out, but but I think what happens is that, uh, and I think this kind of occurs sort of with different speeds in the East versus West, but people start talking more and more in the second sort of way, like using the word God to talk about the nature, the divine nature. Um, and in, uh, like I said, I think early on, people kind of keep straight, you know, what they're talking about. Um, but now I think people have just, at some point, I guess, kind of forgot that that's what the distinction that was being made. And so now they sort of think that the Trinity is supposed to be sort of like this quasi individual that is kind of built up out of three other individuals, like I guess like Captain Planet or Voltron or something, right? You kind of stick them together and get this one big thing. Uh, and that's not kind of really originally what, what was, was meant. Um, and I, it, it seems that this is a real, uh, I mean, I, I kind of, I actually wrote my whole dissertation without, without really getting that this was what was going on in people's mind. There's a whole sort of group of people out there that really think that, uh, it's a big deal that the Bible refers to the, the Bible uses the word God to refer to the father. And then, you know, Augustine or someone uses the word God to refer to the Trinity. Um, like this is a, you know, shift in theology or something. And um, I, I think it's really not, I think it's just kind of a change in, in language more than anything. So, Although I do, I will say this, I mean, I do think that there, there's one sense in which that there is a change, maybe, kind of. Um, and, and that, and maybe this will tie into, because I think you wanted to ask about the monarchy of the father more. So, um, there is a change in the sense that in the West, in particular, after Augustine, um, there really does start to get to be this focus on the divine nature um, and the simplicity of the divine nature being sort of the key to solving how the Trinity is not three gods. Um, if you, if you look at early Christians, the first few centuries, like second and third century, right? 
that are talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And should we be modalists or should we be Arians or like how does this, you know, how does it all work? The the term that they use for monotheism, um, and I point this out in a chapter that I just just wrote recently. Um, so there's a Greek word polytheia, right, which means polytheism, many gods. And you can find, if you search through Greek literature, <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds of, of instances of this word, right, throughout, sorry, this is my cat, I was warning you about him, <laughs> <laughs> my, my co-author sometimes. Um, if you look for the corresponding word monotheia, um, it shows up twice, like if you look in it, there's a, a tool that, that classicists and philologists use to kind of search through all of Greek literature. Uh, it shows up twice. So the word monotheia shows up twice in all of Greek literature from like Homer to the fall of Constantinople. And, it, and it's only used twice and it's in the 14th century, right? So it's like, well, did Christians or did no one have the concept of monotheism? <clears throat> and the, the issue is it's not that no one had the concept of monotheism. It's that they used the word monarchia, uh, which means a single source. It can mean a single rule like our word monarchy, but it can mean a single source like our key can be like in our key was uh, anyway, in the beginning was the logos, right? Is in our key. So um, that was the term that was contrasted with polytheia, right? So, so in other words, what early Christians were worried about, what everyone really was worried about when they thought about, you know, are there many gods was, are there many sources? Is there just one ultimate source of everything or are there, Many and that you know, if you think about like Greek mythology, you've got all these different gods that are doing all these different things, right? Rather than just kind of one. I didn't get that. Whoops, you... <laughs> sorry, Siri. Siri didn't understand that. Um, rather than just kind of one thing at the top, right? So, um, so the the irony, you know, people always think like that it's hard to figure out how the Trinity is monotheistic, but in the sense in which early Christians were monotheistic. <clears throat> and this goes back to pre-Christian Jews, to Philo, the Jewish philosopher who lived just before and during the time of Christ. Um, the the worry was whether there was, you, you had monarchia, right, a single source. Um, and so if you just, if you just kind of have this view that, well, the Father is the source of the Son and the Spirit, right, then there's automatically only one God. And I mean, uh, uncontroversially, right. There's just one God in that sense. Right. Uh, and you still get that language in the creed, right. In the Nicene creed, it starts out. I believe in one God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Right. It doesn't say I believe in one God, the Trinity or something like that. It's just because the, the sense in which monotheism uh, the, the sense in which early Christians understood monotheism was that sense of monarchia. So that's why you get this language in the creed, <clears throat> I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Now, obviously, you know, there's a sense in which the Son and the Spirit are God, right? Um, <clears throat> but they're not the Father, they're not the source, right? So uh, how does that work? And how is, it, you know, are they three gods in a different sense? Well, Gregory of Nyssa, who's who I did my dissertation on, um, says a, a few things about this. So in, uh, it, again, if you read like the pre-Nicene church fathers, anytime it comes up and there, and this is, 
before Constantine, before the Council of Nicaea, um, before any of that. And they're, and they're not talking about it in the context of trying to defend Trinitarianism or something, but it comes up in different contexts. But they all deny that the word God means a thing with the divine nature. They say that's not what the word God means. These, you know, pagan philosophers and whatever might think that's what the word God means, but they say that's not what the word God means. What the word God indicates is a, is some kind of power that is unique to to the divine nature. Um, <clears throat> so Gregory kind of stays with that, and he says, "Look, when the Bible says there's only one God, first of all, it probably just means there's only one source. <laughs> so, so anyway, it's, which, which case it's kind of taken care. Of. But it, but even if you suppose it means there's only one." Um, uh, one God in this this other sense, right? This this sense in which God is like a predicate rather than like a name. Um, <clears throat> he says it's not the divine nature that it's talking about. Um, uh, it's because again, the gods of the Gentiles are demons. Uh, let the gods who have not created the heavens and the earth perish. Uh, Yahweh executed judgment on all the gods of Egypt, and so we're. There's all kinds of language, you know, about gods in, in the Bible uh, that clearly doesn't have to do with the divine nature. And so he says it, it must be this talk about some kind of power that, that the thing has. Uh, and basically there he just says, well, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit have one power. <clears throat> they don't have three powers. So what to understand what that means um, I guess this is a little bit contentious, but it, mm -hmm. basically it's it's the denial of uh, what social Trinitarians believe today. So social Trinitarianism, um, uh, at least as it's usually kind of thought of, is the, the kind of a defining kind of characteristic of it is um, social Trinitarians want to think of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three distinct centers of consciousness and will and so forth right <clears throat> so on that view you you basically have three minds and three wills and three kind of psychological subjects right so social trinitarianism because they're like persons in the, in the modern sense of the word they'll use that phrase sometimes um and basically the church fathers all deny that um at least this is this is what i say um uh, social Trinitarians obviously disagree. Some of them do anyway. Um, but but that's, I think, what, what Gregory of Nyssa is, is getting at. He's saying they, they don't have three powers and wills and minds and thoughts and so forth. And the, the reason that that's important, um, if you have three distinct centers of consciousness, right, then <clears throat> theoretically the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could disagree with each other, right? So, like, one wants to create man and another one doesn't. Um, one wants to make the sky blue and the other one wants to make it green, you know. And, and there'd be, uh, I mean, then you really would have a sense of polytheism, right? You'd have, a, like, like, the way that in Greek mythology you have gods warring against each other and this sort of thing. And uh, Gregory doesn't want to want to have anything like like that in his theology. So maybe I'll I'll shut up now because I'm I'm 
uh, sometimes I go on for too long, but that's, um, that, that, that other sense, he thinks that the Trinity also is not three gods in the, in the sense of being, having three different powers either. Um, and he really just thinks that, that the Bible doesn't really talk about God in the sense of having a nature. He thinks he can accommodate that if somebody really insists uh, that that it is what the word God means. He doesn't think that it does, but he thinks you can still kind of make sense out of them being one God instead of three. But anyway, mm. maybe I'll. Okay. Yeah. So, well, that's helpful. Thanks for that, though. I think what would be helpful now is to kind of look at exactly like what is this view of the monarchy of the mm-hmm. father? Because I think like we can look, talk about social and Latin Trinitarianism, yeah. um, but like trying to pin down like what this means for the father, like the monarchy of the father, this view. Um, mm-hmm. First, I'd like to get into what it is. And obviously there's some people that are like, sure. is this heresy? Like what's going on here? Um, so like you're destroying my precious social Trinitarianism. Oh. Um, so with the monarchy, like, so yeah. we have the father, mm-hmm. um, who's God and he's the one source of like everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so will he like then be like the source of the son and the spirit? Like what's the father's relationship to the source and to the son and yeah. the spirit when we're looking at the monarchy of the father? Yeah. So it's, um, it's always tricky. Like the, the church fathers will, you know, always kind of qualify things with, you know, we're not thinking about this as like a physical process. We're not talking about it, you know, something happening in time and so forth. So you have to kind of abstract from kind of physical ways of thinking about things, right? So God exists outside of time and space. Uh, God isn't made out of matter. So you're not thinking about, you know, pulling a chunk of God play-doh off of you know a bigger chunk or something like that or um you're you're not thinking of it as uh you know the father existing at one moment and then bringing the son into existence or something but in um in the same way i mean they they give different analogies but a, a good one i think is is like the relationship between fire and light or fire and heat right so uh, it's not like you can have a fire burning for a few minutes and then, you know, it eventually finally gives off light and heat, right? It's it's simultaneous, right? As soon as there's fire, there's simultaneous with the fire, there will be light and heat, right? Or an even better way, a more maybe scriptural way, right? The Bible talks about Christ as the icon of God, the icon of the invisible God, or the exact image of his hypostasis. And that idea of, of an image, uh, an icon or an image or a reflection, right? Suppose I, I'm standing in front of a mirror. It's not like, um, well, maybe today we would think, you know, there is a temporal gap because photons have to bounce off the mirror or something. But in a, in a way of thinking in, in the ancient world, you would just think, well, as soon as I'm in front of the mirror, boom, there's a, there's my reflection, right? It's just simultaneous. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yet there is a sense in which one is prior in a, in a kind of logical or metaphysical sense in some sense, right? So obviously I'm prior to my reflection, right? And I, in some sense, am the cause of my reflection, but not in a, in a way such that there's kind of a temporal gap. Um. <clears throat> And, and the Cappadocians do use the word cause. Um, they, they're not afraid to talk about 
the father is the cause and the son and the spirit are caused. <clears throat> Later, Latin writers are a little bit more reluctant to use causa in, in Latin because they think it, it kind of, for them, it kind of has these connotations of there being a temporal gap or it seems more sort of physical. Um, and in Greek, maybe it doesn't have uh, so much of that connotation. Another way to think about it, another analogy, or some, some people take it more seriously than an analogy, but, um, but anyway, a way to think about it is like a mind and an idea, right? So uh, suppose God, um, as seems reasonable, suppose God is all-knowing, right? He's omniscient. So God always has to have a concept of himself. Right. He has to he knows himself and he has an idea of himself and that idea will not be in any way inaccurate. Right. It will be exactly isomorphic to himself. Right. Um, and there won't be any time when God doesn't have this idea. Right. So a lot of fathers kind of uh, compare the, the father to noose or mind and the son is logos or idea. Right. But God, of course, God's idea of himself will be exactly like himself. It won't be right. My, my idea of myself is very incomplete. Right. I I know that I have a spleen, but I don't really know how big it is. Right? When I have it, I, I kind of have this image of just the outside of myself. But I don't have like detailed knowledge of every atom in my body. Right. God has God has perfect knowledge of himself. And so he has this idea that's an exact image of his hypothesis, right? It's an exact reflection of, of him. Um, but insofar as a mind is in some sense prior or more fundamental than, than an idea, um, the father is in that, in that sense prior or more fundamental than the, than the son. <clears throat> um, and, and really, I would just say, don't, you know, don't take it any further than that. People, people uh, get into heretical views about the Trinity when they want to kind of think that that has lots of further implications that it doesn't. Right. So when they, when people start thinking, well, then the father has to exist before the son or uh, you know, the, the son is contingent, like there might be possible worlds where uh, the father doesn't have a son or something like that. But, um, but none of that is, uh, you know, none of that would, would follow from just the, this kind of bare bones sense in which the father is, is original and the son's an image or however you want to, want to put it. Um, one, one way to think about it too is, um, you know, if, if you think about, um, and, and happily, I'm happy to see that a lot of apologists are kind of, making more use of this lately. Um, but the, the stuff in the old Testament about like the angel of the Lord, right. Or, um, the theophanies, right. Where it says no one can see God, but then people say, Oh, I saw God. Right. And the, the idea of Christ as the angel of the Lord, right. But also he, so he's the angel of God, but he also is God, right. He's referred to as Yahweh and as God, um, but also as angel, right? Which angel just means messenger, not like a created angel. Um, that's uh, that. And then the kind of the New Testament talk about Christ being the image of God is a is a good, uh, good place to start thinking about it. 
uh, and, and is what really motivated a lot of the thought during the fourth century. Um, if you if you think of it in terms of the New Testament talk about Christ being the exact image, right? So he's this exact, you know, uh, he, he's just exactly like the father. Um, but he will be the one who comes down to earth and, and talks with people and, and appears to people, right? Um, it, as far as the question, is it heretical? Um, so I think people, let me, let me say this. So uh, the view that the father is the source without source and the son is the source from the source um, that was the view of, of literally anyone who considered themselves a, a Trinitarian Christian from uh, antiquity to like the 1700s, right? So, um, I mean, that's Augustine, it's in the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's in Martin Luther, it's in John Calvin, um, uh, everyone thought that even Calvin, who likes to say that the son and the spirit are also say, if you actually read him, <clears throat> um, what he says is he says that the son is say because the father grants the son to be say. <clears throat> so, so when he says say, it's, he means it in a little different sense from how, People today, when they say something is asse or uncaused or from itself, um, they usually mean sort of in an absolute sense. But Calvin was clear that he, in the absolute sense, he thought only the father was absolutely uncaused. Um, he makes this kind of distinction between being essentially uncaused versus hypostatically uncaused and so forth, um, which is kind of technical but point being he he thought only the father was absolutely uncaused it's not until the 1700s that you get people who actually just flat out say they do not think that the son and the holy spirit uh, are caused in any sense so the father son and holy spirit is all all the same in in that respect um uh, usually people count Herman Alexander Roll as the first person to say there, there's some other people kind of around the same time as him that say it but but when people when the handful of people did start saying that um uh, at that time everybody just said they were heretics I mean people thought they were just as bad as as Unitarians or whatever they just this is tritheism this is awful um so it, it still wasn't very uh it wasn't really accepted um and as far as I can tell, it's not until um, these Princeton theologians in the 1800s, like B.B. Warfield, um, that uh, they start sort of reconsidering that and thinking, well, maybe this is OK and maybe this is kind of right. So by the like late 1800s, um, uh, some so it's kind of a subset of of reformed Protestants start thinking that maybe that's really legitimately okay. And then I weirdly, um, so then by the, you know, middle to end of the 20th century and now, you know, uh, into the 21st century, <clears throat> now you've got people who really do seem to think like, uh, oh, that's just what we've always believed, right? Like this stuff that we actually thought was heretical for 17 or 1800 years. Um, uh, that's the orthodoxy and, and, you know, what people have always believed before that is, is some kind of heresy. So, um, 
so yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, a kind of case of theological amnesia, I guess, that people think what what they've believed for the last hundred years is just kind of what's always been there. But um, so I would say, I mean, I, I think um, you know, some sometimes this what I call an egalitarian view of the Trinity um, is motivated by theological concerns that. Uh, as an Orthodox Christian, I don't share, but, you know, I think maybe um, depending on your soteriology or just depending on maybe other theological commitments you might have, I can sort of see how some, some evangelical Protestants like uh, would, would be motivated to, to kind of go in a direction where the persons of the Trinity are all kind of equally uncaused and without source or whatever. But um, but historically speaking, it certainly is not the um, has not been the norm through through Christian history. So and, and one thing that I, I guess uh, to, to maybe I'll be a little bit more aggressive. <laughs> um, I, I think it's weird to say that, like, literally everyone was a heretic until like the 1700s. Like, that's a hard, you know, like, like I can mm-hmm. I, guess if someone takes the position that like well we really need this because of our theology or something but you know the other view is is okay too like you maybe i don't think it's right but it's not like i don't know um i think william lane craig is kind of like this like he has this sort of egalitarian view of the trinity but his his like official model of the trinity is just kind of non-committal about whether you have eternal begetting and proceeding or or not like um, I can, uh, you know, I, I, I can see why, why maybe maybe your other theological commitments would lead you to that. But but when people are just like, oh yeah, the monarchy of the father, that's that's heresy. It's like so so like everyone at the Council of Nicaea was a heretic. Uh, all of the creeds are heretical. Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, like everybody's. That seems hard hard to swallow um, to to me. So that's my yeah, answer. <laughs> I think it's helpful. It's hard because one of the, I think something that just initially makes this topic hard is because we come at it from like our kind of cultural background. Yeah. Like you talked yeah. about, like we live in 20, like we live in 21st century America where something yeah. like yeah. the monarchy of the father is a view that like, I haven't really thought about a lot and like a yeah. view like, you know, like social or Latin Trinitarianism. These are things that are more kind of like, in my grasp of like, oh, these are like the orthodox views of the Trinity. And if you go outside yeah, of that yeah. box, well, then, ooh, that's yeah. like not, no bueno. Like you probably shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what we have to, what you're saying is like, we really have to step back and look at this and go to the sources. Like if you said like, a, yeah. if you said you were a social Trinitarian, like, and you told that to John Calvin, you're saying John Calvin be like, what are you talking about? Like that makes, that doesn't make sense. Um, so yeah, actually, it's interesting you mentioned that because now that I think about it, I have to look this up. Not, I'm not like a huge Calvin scholar, but I'd be willing to bet he believed in inseparable operations, um, which means that the persons all kind of have the same activities. You know, um, I'll have to mm-hmm. look that up. So, um, yeah, I just... no, I think, I think you're right. I think, I mean, it's it's something that, um, yeah, I it, and it's something that's always annoyed me about the philosophical literature too. Is that you would you would hope that people would be um, 
you know, in like scholarly literature, you know, people would be digging into the source material, but, um, but it, at least in philosophy, they, they don't. You, what you said, though, made, it reminded me of something. I mean, it, there's a, an essay by C.S. Lewis. Um, I forget the name of the essay, but he's talking about like modern biblical criticism and this sort of thing. And, and one of the things that he says in it is just like, you know, just the idea that we living, you know, thousands of years later and in a different country and a different culture and with all these different philosophical presuppositions and everything like and, you know, not speaking the same languages as the biblical authors or the church fathers, like the idea that we would understand better. I mean, he's talking about the Bible, but like that we would understand the Bible better than they would is, you know, just preposterous I think but also yeah I think that you know the the idea that we um uh we can just sort of consult our own intuitions about theology or something and you know we'll we'll come up with you know we we kind of know what's what's orthodox and what's heretical or whatever without actually going back and reading the sources um yeah is kind of naive hmm. Okay, yeah, that's helpful, Bo. So just to kind of, like, understand your view, like, I'm really trying to understand, like, the monarchical, monarchical sure. um, view. And we have the mm -hmm. Father, um, and everything proceeds from the Father. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I like how you, you talked about, like, when we're saying, like, the Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father, it's not saying, like, the Son created the Father, or, sorry, the Father created the Son, and the Father, right. like, created the Spirit. But it's rather, like, it's, like, you have, like, almost, like, the mind and, like, the idea. Like, the Father has the idea of the yeah, Son, yeah. But then it's not like a creation idea, but it's something like, what exactly right. do you mean there? Right. Yeah, no, that, that's it. So one way to think about it is this, like, um, so a big difference between like pagan Greek philosophical sort of thought about the universe and Christian thought about it, Jewish and Christian thought about it is uh the uh, people like Plato and Aristotle tended to think that the universe was eternal. Um, and it would be <clears throat> kind of the idea is sort of like, well, um, uh, there, there's this energy that's kind of inseparable from God. Right. And he's just constantly creating the universe. But the idea was sort of that it, it, it was necessary. Right. So, if if God makes there be a universe, then that's that's something God does by nature. So as long as God's been around, the universe has been around. And because of the way they thought about matter and form and so forth, they kind of were led to think that was just necessarily the case. Matter is eternal, co-eternal with God. And of course, that doesn't work for Jews and Christians, right? Jews and Christians come along and they're like, no, God uh, there's not, you know, God and matter kind of together. It's, it's that God creates matter and he does it freely. It's a, it's a free act of, of the will, right? So creation is contingent. God didn't have to create, uh, and it comes into existence at a certain moment of time. God creates things ex nihilo, right? Um, <clears throat> what, what essentially happens in Christians and pagan philosophers and some sort of maybe kind of heretical Christian views that kind of go back and forth about these issues. And <clears throat> again, pagans tend to think, okay, creation is necessary. Then what Arians thought was uh, 
no, creation is contingent and it comes into being at a particular moment. And so does the sun, right? And the spirit. So they thought you, you have to kind of go one way or the other, right? So, so they thought of the sun as a creature and then the sun maybe, depending on the version, creates the Holy Spirit and then everything else, right? Um, and really what, uh, what people like Athanasius of the Cappadocians want to do is say, look, both of these are coherent sort of concepts, but you just kind of have to keep it straight, right? So the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal with the Father, right? And, and they are generated out of the Father in a way that's necessary, so they're co-eternal. And, uh, and for them, of course, it's not like, you know, the father is form and the son is matter or something. I mean, they're they're for the church fathers, the father and the son are the same. They're homoousius. They're the same kind of thing. Right. Um, but creation is, is contingent and uh, creation comes into being ex nihilo. Uh, and both of these are, are coherent concepts, but one, you know, one has to keep them kind of straight. Um, so I don't know if that helps. I guess it depends on whether you're, you're familiar with the, the way ancient pagans thought about creation. But, um, but like I said, I mean, uh, yeah, some analogies like, you know, light and heat coming from fire, they're not really, um, that's not something that is contingent. It's not like the fire could, if it wanted to not produce light and heat or, um, like there's a moment where there's not any light or heat and then it, you know, comes into being later or something. It's just simultaneous with, with the fire or again, like the idea is simultaneous with the, the mind. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, you're, you're not to think of it as, as creation as that kind of production. It's a different kind of or sense of okay. if you want to put it that way. So, I wonder then, if you don't mind, yeah. how do we think about like the personality? Um, because we think about like in a traditional view, the Trinity, we understand like the Father and the Son and the Spirit having different roles. Um, like the Son oh, yeah. becomes incarnate and in, like in the person of Jesus and dies for our sin. The Holy yeah. Spirit is like the gift we receive, like when we become believers. Um, mm -hmm. Things like this. So in a view, we're like, it, it seems like trying to make sense of like yeah. how exactly like like what does it mean to be the sun what does it mean to be the like the spirit like how do we get the personality there right know? how do you get the kind of distinction or yeah because i mean i think it makes sense like like you're the father like he's like the source of everything um mm -hmm. then like we have this the son and the spirit which proceed from the father like how do they get their personality because we don't want to say it was created obviously uh personality in the sense of like like a Maybe mind. like your distinctness or like, like a it, mind or yeah, yeah. Like okay. something along those lines. Well, because those are two different issues. So so the, the issue is the you know the the pro-Nicenes, as people call them sometimes, um they wouldn't say that the father and the son are uh distinct in a in a psychological sort of sense, right? Because if you mm -hmm. think about it, thinking is an activity. Uh, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are supposed to share the same powers and activities, right? So the the, the way they think of it, powers and activities kind of um, correlate with the divine nature, not not the hypostases. So 
they don't really, you know, they, they don't really think of it as like three minds or something like that, um, which creates its own kind of raises its own questions. But anyway, uh, but as far as uh, being, as far as the, just the distinction, like the, the non-identity, what they say is that, I mean, and this is something that's repeated in Athanasius and the Cappadocians and Augustine and Western fathers and everyone too. So, and Thomas Aquinas, everybody. <clears throat> the, what distinguishes them is the fact that the father is unbegotten, right? That's what makes him not identical to the son. Um, and not and, and in a stronger sense, right? The father's unbegotten, meaning he's without source. Uh, the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeds. And there's a whole there's a whole argument about this um, uh, about the distinction between begetting and proceeding um, that kind of gives rise to the the filioque controversy. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son, or just from the Father? But in any case, let's just say this begetting and and proceeding are different different relations or different things. Um, so that's what makes them distinct is, is that precisely those, the issues of, of cause and caused or uh, having a source, not having a source. Um, but as far as this is something that, you know, sometimes people ask about this, that, you know, like the incarnation or the, the Holy spirit being sent uh, to people and so forth. Um <clears throat> Uh, and Augustine addresses this, I think it's Epistle 11, where he talks about that. Um, and what he says is, look, you know, there's a difference between <clears throat> the, the activity and the result of an activity, right? So um, let's say, um, I don't know, this is, I forget who, who, it's maybe maybe David Bradshaw's example, but anyway, let's say that you know you have some pants that you're trying, or like a costume you're trying to get into, or something, and um, it's kind of hard to get into, right? So you have a couple people, stagehands or something, right, who are trying to help you into this outfit. So all three of you are cooperating in like trying to get these this you know crazy tight outfit on, right? So all three of you are performing or, or you're kind of engaged in or cooperating in the same activity, right? But the result of that activity is not that all three of you have a costume on, right? The result of that activity is that just you have the, have the costume on, right? And so that's, what, that's kind of an analogy to, to what uh, Augustine says, and I think other fathers would agree, about the incarnation, right? The incarnation is... Uh, a result of a joint activity, right? So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all cooperate on kind of, let's say, knitting the the second person of the Trinity and a human nature, right, together. They all three kind of do that, and the result is just that the one person is is united. So it's not like in it's not. Uh, it's not like incarnating is an activity that the son does and the father and the spirit don't. Um, it's that this, uh, the son's becoming incarnate, right. Is something that all three of them perform. Okay. So you have, when we're thinking about, for example, the incarnation, we have the father, the spirit and the son, 
the spirit and the son proceed um, from the father. They're not created by the father. And they're all like working together in a sense. Um, and they like, in every, and however the incarnation works, they fuse together the son and like the human nature. And then we have Jesus. Um, that right? Basically, yeah. Yeah. So how is that not social Trinitarianism? Because people are wondering, like, hey, do you have three different, like, it almost sounds like you have three different, like, persons working together here to make this happen. Like, isn't that what the social Trinitarians wanted to say in the, in the first place? Well, it depends. So social Trinitarians, certainly, they, they take a cue from the Cappadocians in that the Cappadocians are very clear about the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these are three numerically distinct, concrete things, right? Um, the... The problem, uh, I see it as a problem anyway, the, the problem with social Trinitarianism is that typically social Trinitarians want to say that when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit act, they are, uh, there are three different distinct powers, right, and, and centers of consciousness and three activities. The, so the analogy that I gave you... Um, I mean, this is an imperfect analogy because obviously if, if three people all try to cooperate to get one guy's pants on, right, then what's really going to happen with three physical entities, created beings, is they're going to be in three different places at the same at, at that time, and they're going to be kind of doing slightly different activities, right? One's going to be pulling up this side and the other one's going to be pulling up that side. And so it's really three activities kind of just, you know, sort of together and close together or something. Mm -hmm. uh, the the pro-Nicene view is that uh, li very literally, the literal same activity is done by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So uh, a, a way to think about, about it is this, like, the father creates the universe, right? The son creates the universe too. Um, and the Holy spirit creates the universe. So they, they would point to like, um, you know, by the, by the word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth, the heavens were established. So they, they interpret that as the word is the logos, the son of God and the spirit, the breath is the spirit, right? So mm -hmm. it's God, the father creates the universe but it's also true that the sun creates the universe. And it's also true that the Holy spirit creates the universe. Right. But there's not three different universes, <clears throat> right? There's only one. And it's not like the father created a part of it and the son created a part and the Holy spirit created a part. Right. They just literally all three, right. There's only one, there's one like big bang, right. There's one act of creation, and it's literally all three of them performing it at the same time. And Gregory talks about this. Um, I talk about this in my dissertation and in a, in a paper, I, I, in a book that just came out on Gregory of Nyssa on the individuation of actions and events. That uh, we can't literally perform the same activities because the same things that make, so what makes, among other things, what makes you, you and me, me, what gives us a distinction of hypostases is you're over there and I'm over here, right? So if, if nothing else, we're separated by space, right? And so if you're making a shoe, your shoe is going to be over there. And if I'm making a shoe, mine's going to be over here. And even if we got together and tried to make a shoe together, um, 
you know, you'd be working on the sole and I'd be working on putting the laces in or whatever. It'd be, be slightly different activities. You'd have to kind of break the activity down into parts and each of us work on a part. Since the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not spatially limited like we are, right? They're just, I mean, you could think of them as omnipresent or you can think of them as outside time and space. But either way, they're all three omnipresent, right? Or they're all three outside time and space, however you think of it. So they literally can just literally perform the same particular token action at the same time. Um, and that's that's the view of, of inseparable operations. And it's why Gregory thinks it would be um, uh, at best highly misleading to say that there were three gods um, because he says if you say that there are three gods in ordinary conversation it you would think of like Zeus and Poseidon and Hades who all kind of have power over different parts of the universe like they can disagree with each other and maybe have wars or something like that and he says that's not the case with the trinity they have literally the same token power and the same token activities that they engage in. Hmm. One thing, by the way, just to, as an aside, I mean, I, 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 that's something. So people call that the doctrine of inseparable operations in Latin, in Greek, sometimes people call it synergy. <clears throat> and I think it's a very useful idea because um, you also have this issue of like in the Bible, uh, it will ascribe miracles to God and to a prophet, right? So it'll say like Moses parted the Red Sea, but of course it was God who parted the Red Sea, right? Um, or Elijah or Elisha raised someone from the dead, right? But God raised them from the dead. Um, and how do you make sense out of that except to say that it's possible for distinct persons in some cases to perform the same activity, Right. Um, otherwise, you you and which of course again you know distinct physical persons can't but but you could synergize with God right because God is located where you are too right He can the persons of the Trinity aren't limited in that way so they could synergize with with one person so you know otherwise if you don't believe in synergy you have to either say like no prophet ever really did a miracle, right? They just, God did it and they just were sitting there or they were, you know, they were there. So, you know, Moses raised his staff, but it's really, you know, it's just kind of at the same time as God did the miracle. Or you'd have to say God never does, you know, a miracle. It's always really the people that are doing it and, and God's just kind of, you know, empowers them to do it or who knows what. Um, similarly, I think it's also useful to think about when you think about the inspiration of scripture, right? So people a lot of times kind of think they have to choose between like, well, did God like word for word dictate, you know, words to Paul and, and, but, you know, but then it's like, well, why do different books of the Bible have different writing styles if it's just all God kind of dictating, um, or is it like just the persons wrote it and they've kind of were, you know, inspired in the kind of a loose sense, like, well, I just mm -hmm. like a painting inspired me to write something. 
But um, but if you believe in synergy, right, then you can say like, no, literally David wrote the Psalms and literally the Holy Spirit wrote the Psalms. Um, so anyway, that's kind of a little about this doctrine of inseparable operations and why I think it's it's good. It's useful. <laughs> yeah, it's helpful. So we have this. What I'd love to do now, Bo, is I probably have about 30 minutes left, is like look at some objections to this doctrine. Yeah. Um, so I think the big thing people might worry about is like, is this going to fall into heresy? Um Obviously, it's probably like pushing against a lot of like 21st century Western intuitions here about like what the Trinity is. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe, Bo, talk about like why might someone think your view is heretical and then how would you kind of respond to that? I think sometimes people do. And I think what they what they think is that it will result in some kind of Arianism um, or people will use the word subordinationism. Um, <clears throat> and I guess here's what I'd say about that. So. Uh, number one, I guess to talk about the Aryan issue, um, I mean, it's important to realize that none of the church fathers were Aryans, right? <laughs> but, but they all affirmed the monarchy of the father. Um, you know, Augustine wasn't an Aryan. Athanasius wasn't an Aryan. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is not an Aryan. No, you know, no, no one uh, uh, affirmed Arianism. Um, what the, it, it's actually what the Arians, especially Eunomius, who was this kind of hardcore Arian at kind of towards the end of the Trinitarian controversy. He made an argument that he, he just said that, um, so for him, being ungenerate, being unbegotten, he said, just is the divine nature. That's, that's the essence of what it is to be, to, to be God is to be unbegotten. And so the way that he used that argument was he said, well, so God, you know, to be God, it's essential that you, you have to be unbegotten. Right. And uh, everyone acknowledges that the father is unbegotten, but everyone acknowledged that the son is begotten. And so he said, therefore the father and the son don't have the same divine nature they don't even have similar divine natures. They have they have absolutely opposite divine opposite natures, right? So he was this hardcore. Um, there are all kinds of different sort of flavors of Aryan, right? But depending on whether they said, well, the Father and the Son are similar, um, they're similar in essence, or just kind of similar in general. And he said they're just different. They're just totally different natures, right? Um, <clears throat> The, the response to that in antiquity was to deny that premise. So the Cappadocians said, no, uh, being ungenerated is not part of the divine nature. That's a relation. It's not a nature. Uh, nowadays, so, so therefore, it's fine for us to say the Father, Son, and Spirit have the same intrinsic nature, uh, and they just have different relational properties, right? What's happened is in, in recent years, um, people have resurrected this, and it's kind of ironic. <clears throat> what they've done to argue that the Orthodox view is Aryan um, is they've resurrected an Aryan argument, right? So they've resurrected that eunomian premise that if the Father, Son, and Holy if if the Son and the Spirit uh, are are generated, then they can't have the divine nature, right? 
which the Aryans used it to say, well, everyone admits that they're, they're generated, right? No one in antiquity would have questioned that. So therefore they can't have the same divine nature, right? That was how the Aryans used it. Well, people today just use it in the opposite direction. They'll say, well, of course you want to say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have the divine nature. So therefore they have to just all three be ungenerated. So there's three fathers now, right? Um, so anyway, ironically, that's how they'll argue, right? They, they, they're kind of reviving this eunomian premise um, and just kind of taking it in the other direction, right? But, uh, but the Cappadocian response to that was just always to deny that premise, to say those you know, relations and natures are different things, which if you think about it, I mean, seems to me, seems obvious. And I, it's, I'm kind of flabbergasted in a way when people give credence to this sort of argument. So um, Gregory of Nyssa gives this example. He says, you know, suppose you had a, a torch with a flame on it. <clears throat> and that flame has just always been there um, or it's been there for a long time, whatever you got this first flame. Right. And now you take another torch and you light it off of the first one. Right. So it's generated quote unquote, right. From, from the first one, he says uh, it would just, it would be absurd to say the second one's not really fire. <laughs> right. And they, they couldn't possibly have the same nature because one was always there, you know, and the other one uh, is from the first one. Of course, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say it's, or, or he gives the example, you know, cause the Aryans would say, <clears throat> some of them would say like the father has this kind of most authentic divine nature and the son is kind of semi-divine and then the Holy Spirit's just a flat out creature or something. And he, he says, you know, may, maybe someone would say like, Oh, the first one, you know, the first torch really has a flame on it. And the second one, you know, it's kind of fire, but it's not quite fire. And then the last one, you know, there's a third one. It's not even really fire at all. Even though he says, even though they, they all three give off light, they give off heat. They consume the material that they're burning. I mean, they do all the same things that fire does, but yet, you know, they can't really all be fire because one's generated from the other. Um, and that's kind of his his thing is that he says, look, natures are the, the way that we individuate natures is based on their causal powers. Right. So what what we do to to identify fire, we have kind of a set of causal powers we associate with it, like giving off light and heat and burning and consuming things. Right. So if something does all those things, then it would count as fire, right? Um, and so he says that's that's all you kind of need to know about the, the persons of the Trinity to know where they have the same nature. Another another example he gives is is with a tree. He says, you know, if someone asked, like, like if I didn't know the difference between an oak tree and an elm tree, and I, I look outside and there's a tree and I say, hey, what kind of tree is that? And somebody says, oh, it's always been there. Like he'd say, well, that's not that's not an answer to my question. Right. Or if someone or if he says, what kind of tree is that? And someone says, oh, someone planted it. He says, hey, I'm not asking, did it grow wild or was it planted? I'm asking what what kind is it? Right. What's its intrinsic mm -hmm. nature? So that's uh, that's their response to the eunomian premise is just to say there, there's a difference between the intrinsic nature of a thing and, you know, its relation of origin to something else. Okay.
Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, I'm going to take you off for one sec, Bo. Um, now you're back. I'm hoping there's like a little loop where it's like, it looks like it's like your video is like 10 seconds behind your audio. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah, but I don't even, I don't know. I can hear you fine. That's the big thing. Um, okay. So we'll just keep rolling with it then. So that's helpful, Bo. One thing I think that might be helpful for people is thinking about like the role of Christian tradition in this yeah, debate. Yeah. Um, so what exactly, like, what do you recommend? Cause like you're, you're, you want to say um, that if you look at the sources, like look at like Justin Martyr or Arrhenius, like these other like early church fathers, um, there's really strong grounding for a view, something like yours and not so much for like a, like a more like model today, like social Trinitarianism or whatnot. So like, what do you recommend for people? Like, how do you, like look at this in the monarchy of the father. How do you recommend other people look at like the sources here? Um, and like, what do they say about like this debate in your view? Um, are you talking about like what, how to, um, are you, are you thinking about like recommendations? Let's, let's, for... let's say, let's start with first. What do the, what do the, what do the fathers say in your reading? And then maybe yeah. say like, where do you say like, where can people go read the fathers on this? Sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, a good, um, if you've got some time to put into it um, and you really, you know, you really want to kind of get a big uh, systematic sort of overview, um, you might read John of Damascus, St. John of Damascus. Um, uh, there's a work that he has. The, the big work is called The Fount of Knowledge. Um, and there's a first part of it called The Dialectica or the Philosophical Chapters, where he kind of defines a lot of philosophical terms. And then there's a later part of it called the exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. Uh, and he just kind of goes through in order, you know, starting with the Trinity and the incarnation and on and on through creation and salvation and everything. So it's kind of like, uh, it's actually what like people like Thomas Aquinas and a lot of the scholastics sort of modeled um, their uh, summa and, and that sort of thing after, but it's, it's a little bit, maybe a little bit shorter than, um, than the, some of the later ones, but, um, but it's good. I mean, uh, you know, it's John of Damascus is, is considered one of the church fathers kind of conventionally thought of as like the last of the church fathers. And he really just synthesizes a lot of what went before him. Um, if you're more interested in something like specifically, um, the, uh, just the issue of the Trinity and kind of whether it counts as tritheism or whatever, um, uh, I'd say you can read, if you're interested in tritheism, there's, there's a short work by Gregory of Nyssa called To Ablabius, um, or in Latin, Ad Ablabium, um, where he deals with that. And that's, uh, if you want to go to my website, my dissertation is, is basically the second half of it <clears throat> is just kind of going through that work in, in a lot of detail. Um, uh, Gregory Nazianzen's Five Theological Orations uh, is is a classic place to to go and look if you're interested in a lot of talk about begetting and and proceeding and why that's uh, doesn't compromise the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, Saint Basil has <clears throat> a work on the Holy Spirit, um, and also uh, there's some longer works against Eunomius. Um, by Basil and against Eunomius by Gregory of Nyssa. Um, 
So those are some kind of some some places I'd, I'd recommend. But if you're looking for just kind of something like a modern uh, summary of things, I I guess um, from a historical sort of perspective, Lewis Ayers um, has a, a good book called um, Nicaea and its Legacy. Um, and that's shorter than John Bear's uh, <laughs> uh, 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 The Nicene Faith. Um, uh, if you're interested, actually, I don't think, uh, I'm not sure that he does a fantastic job with the monarchy of the father. Um, but, but the book simply Trinity that Matthew Barrett came out with not too long ago. Um, I, I, there's some ways in which it's kind of slanted to, to a Western sort of perspective for, for my taste, but it's, if you just want to get kind of the basics of, of the patristic view of the Trinity down, I think. Uh, I think he does a, a, a good job of kind of explaining a lot of the basics in layman's terms. And he also does, I think, a really nice job of explaining where social Trinitarianism actually came from and a lot of what sort of motivated it. That um, once you see that kind of recent history, I think you might uh, might be a little skeptical of, of it after you kind of see the the uh, origins of it, I guess. But anyway, so it's, it's a decent kind of book, uh, in layman's terms with, I say that with some reservations, but, but, uh, but generally it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, that's helpful. So I appreciate that a lot though. Um, I'm going to try taking you off one more time okay, as I keep talking and if it doesn't work, it doesn't okay. work. Hopefully people okay. find this, um, podcast edifying for like the value of like the content we're putting out and not just like uh like the pretty pictures and whatnot because i really hope people production like, value. Deep. yeah <laughs> we're not here for like high quality production value and flashing lights and cool cameras yeah. and all that stuff yeah. that's not really what i've been trying to do um but i do think it'd be helpful like with the church fathers here um as we start to get towards the end here um what are they saying about the Trinity and then how does this kind of go against maybe like a social model of the Trinity? We hinted at this a little bit. You talked about in the beginning, um, that kind of start to go here and like you can throw in Latin Trinitarianism as well. Like how, like what, what are they saying? And like, how is that going to compare to like these modern views that a lot of, especially Christians in the West have? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, so I don't know if it's, um, So some of the, the things I, I've talked about, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know, I don't want to be totally unfair to, to like Western Christianity. So a lot of this is kind of really the shared heritage of, of East and West. Um, what, uh, what I would say is, I mean, so you've kind of got, um, there, there's three senses, let's say, in which you can use the word God or talk about one God, right? You might be talking about the monarchy, right? So there's one ultimate source, in which case there's one God. Ba St. Basil says it this way. He says, there's one God because there's one father. He says, anyone who preaches two fathers has two gods. Um, <clears throat> so in that sense, right, in the, in the sense of the monarchy, that it's the father is, you know, when we say, I believe in one God, the father, that's the ultimate source kind of sense. You have these other senses of God in, in the sense of a, a being that has a certain kind of power or activity that it performs. And then you can use the word God to talk about something with the divine nature, right? 
Um, and like I said, I mean, the original sense of monotheism is just that monarchia. Um, the inseparable operations, right? The fact that the persons of the Trinity share power and, and activity um, is, is this other sense in which they count as one God. And also there's a sense in which they, they are one God because the divine nature isn't divided. Um, it, it, but really all of those, um, e even in the West, I mean, all of those doctrines are affirmed uh, for, I mean, up through the medieval period and into the modern period and into the early Reformation and everything. Um, it's just that I think in the West, there starts to get to be this like hyper focus on the unity of the divine nature, like that's supposed to solve all of our problems. There's just kind of a more of an emphasis on it. Um, <clears throat> so um, to talk about why, what the difference is between a patristic sort of view and social Trinitarianism, though, I, I guess I would just go back to social Trinitarians. Um, <clears throat> typically, what they want to do is say that the way that you get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, is because they have three distinct centers of consciousness. So like you, usually for them, for social Trinitarians, typically that's why you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is because you, you just start with the idea that there are these three centers of consciousness, right? And that's how you get the, and so that's also why, if that's what you, if, if that's how you get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you don't need the eternal relations of begetting and proceeding anymore, right? Because they just, they just come individuated out of the, out of the package, right? They're just already, yeah. they're already three, right? <clears throat> so you don't need, need any of that. Um, but you also lose the inseparable operations, right? So I think that's part of what's happened is that uh, people have decided, and, and Barrett does a good, does do a good job of, of, of explaining that, that what, what really happened on his story is that people decided the doctrine of the Trinity was worthless, that it didn't do anything. And uh, so who cares about it? We could just, we could just drop the Trinity and we'd still have, you know, the same sort of salvation story and whatever. It doesn't really matter. And so then some theologians basically wanted to make the doctrine of the Trinity relevant somehow, right? And so the idea was, well, if we think of this as like three distinct persons and the Trinity is like this kind of society that they form, then we can use the doctrine of the Trinity as a model for all sorts of social programs and whatever right and so it's been used for everything from you know to uh to give a theological justification for like communism and environmentalism and homosexuality and heterosexual and egalitarian views of the family and non-egalitarian views and just whatever so you just kind of whatever your social agenda is you just kind of pack that into the trinity and then you can you know, use that to justify things. But, um, uh, but again, it, it, you know, the, the way that would contrast with the patristic view is just the church fathers are very clear that the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a single energy. They have a single activity. So 
<clears throat> that includes will, thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in, including, I mean, very explicitly will, like the act of willing um, that there's just one will in the Trinity because um, the will kind of correlates to the nature, not, not to the persons. Okay. Yeah. That, that's super helpful, Bo. Um, as you start to wrap up here, are there any, like any, anything else relevant that you want to bring up here before we close out for today? Um, I don't know. I think, um, I think we've covered a, a pretty decent amount of, of ground. Um, uh, I guess just if people are interested in uh, any, any things that I've published, I, I have a, on my website, a, res a page of research. So you can, you can download articles of, of mine. Um, mm -hmm. And I, that's probably about it. I think it sounds like we covered a, a decent amount. Yeah. I'm looking through my questions and I think we got through a lot of it. We didn't talk a lot about Latin Trinitarianism, but I think that's fine. The only thing we didn't talk about was the logical problem of the Trinity. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe do you want to just very briefly like sketch out, like I'm thinking like 60 seconds, sure. 120 seconds, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. what it is and like, how do you think Monarch, your view kind of responds to the logical sure. problem? So the, the logical problem of the Trinity in, in the philosophical literature, basically people will lay out uh, these claims like, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit, and but there's only one God, right? <clears throat> and the question, the, the way they'll frame it is kind of how do you interpret all those claims so that it's not a contradiction? Mm -hmm. um, people call what people say that Latin Trinitarianism is relative identity Trinitarianism. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's the right way to think about it. But anyway, one way to approach the issue, philosophically speaking, the way philosophers have done is to say, yeah, the word God there is functioning like the proper name of an individual, um, but identity is weird and it's not uh, it's not so straightforward. So uh, mm -hmm. it's true that the father they'll say the father equals God, um, but uh, but the equal has to always be relative to something, right? So the father is uh, God identical to God, or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God identical but person distinct. So there's kind of different, there's different identity relations. There's not just one relation of identity and that's how they get around it. So the normal relation, the, the normal logic of identity would be if the father equals God and the son equals God, then the father equals the son, right? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So they say, well, identity kind of works in this. It's relative. There's different kinds of identity relations. Social Trinitarians usually say, well, the word God there isn't functioning like a proper name. It's, it's functioning like a predicate, like man. Like, so it's just kind of like saying the Father is divine, the Son is divine, the Holy Spirit's divine, but yet there's only one God. And then they'll say, well, <clears throat> the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are divine in one sense, but then there's this one, one God, the Trinity, right, which is God in kind of a different sense. So like William Lane Craig's view, <clears throat> the way he does this is he says the Trinity is kind of this big thing that literally instantiates the divine nature. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't have the divine nature. They they just kind of are parts of God and they're, they're divine in kind of a different sense. Um, I think that's super problematic because then the, 
I mean, not only does the son not have the divine nature, right? Even God, the father doesn't have the divine nature. Nobody has the divine nature, just the Trinity does. Um, uh, but that's kind of a standard. That's, that's one way to, to do social Trinitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, what I say is this, I say there's three different senses of, of the word God, right? There's God in the sense of source, uh, God in the sense of power and God in the sense of nature. And I would say the, the biblical issue is God in the sense of source. Um, and in that sense, uh, none of the church fathers ever say that anyone other than the father is, is the ultimate source, right? So it just wouldn't be, um, you just wouldn't be saying that the son is God in the sense of being the source without source, right? You're saying he's God in the sense of having the divine nature and having the divine power, right? So uh, there, there's really no, it's, it's just obvious that there's no problem, right? Um, with the, the power and the nature uh, issues, I, I'd say uh, this kind of gets into a whole other issue, but, but uh, the, the concept of quantity or number in antiquity was different from how we think of it today. So they, they really think of, um, they think of number or quantity in terms of division so if X and Y can't be divided, then they're one. Mm-hmm. An, an analogy would be like um, uh, if I have a lump of clay and I, I make a statue out of it, the lump of clay existed on Monday, but the statue didn't exist until Tuesday, right? So they're not identical by Leibniz's law, but you can't take them apart, <laughs> Right. So they're one physical object, even though they're not identical because they're indivisible. And what all the church fathers say is just that the the power and the activity of the persons are indivisible and the nature is indivisible. Uh, And so the persons of the Trinity are are one in that sense. Um, I think people today get get tripped up with with that a lot because we think about counting differently from how people in antiquity did uh, that's great thanks for that bell um and thank you so much for coming on today you're welcome i really, I really appreciate this conversation well. and i feel like there's so much more here that we can really untap but maybe yeah. another day so thank you so much for coming on um you hinted at it but how can people follow you connect with you um like that sure uh i don't really have a lot of social media but i have a i have a website it's just bobranson.com and uh, like I said, there's a page on there with the research um, that has all my papers and everything. So that's pretty much <laughs> that's pretty much how you know, I don't yeah, have a awesome. or anything like that. So yeah, you said you don't have a computer. No, I don't have Twitter. I, I don't have oh. I don't do a lot of social media stuff. So I was like, wait, how are yeah. we talking right no, now? No, no, <laughs> I have, I have um, yeah. yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on. I'll put a link down below for your website. Um, and yeah, that's that. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, this is here in Apologetics, everyone. If you're new, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you like what we do, uh, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. So you here in Apologetics. Bo, one last time. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Have a good one, everyone. And God bless. We'll catch you next time.